This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Welcome to a Turn on the Jets digital special presentation, breaking news edition. My name is Scott Mason. You can follow me on Twitter at PlayLikeAJet1. And we are going to talk about the news of the Hall of Fame class of 2019, which includes three people that played for the Jets and one of them who spent the bulk of his prime with the Jets, and that's the main ticket. And, of course, is Kevin Mawai, so we'll lead off with him. Joined by Chris Nimbley of JetsInsider.com. Chris, what's going on, man? Not much. How's it going, Scott? It's going great for me because I've been saying for a while that Kevin Mawai absolutely should be in the Hall of Fame this go-around, and he got sent in. So Kevin Mawai is going to be part of the class of 2019. Chris, this is very interesting with Kevin Mawai. I didn't even realize this because I didn't pay that much attention to him when he was at LSU, but he played pretty much every offensive line position when he was at LSU and ended up getting drafted in the second round by the Seattle Seahawks. He played center toward the end, but he also played tackle, guard, everything you can imagine when he was in college. And then he went into the pros, started off as a guard, and made the all-rookie team his first year in the NFL back in 1994. He was picked 36th overall in the NFL draft. In 96, he gets moved to center. And then here's where the story really picks up for us, Chris. In 1998, the New York Jets signed him. It's Bill Parcells' second year. This was a huge free agent coup for him. At the time, we didn't really know it because this was before you had pro football focus and all these scouts on Twitter telling you how great offensive linemen were. All you knew was this guy was a center in Seattle. He was a part of the all-rookie team, and Bill Parcells liked him, so he must be good. And so that's what happened when he came in. That was our thought. Okay, Parcells knows offensive line. This guy must be pretty good. But he turned out to be a little bit more than pretty good. Let's talk about him coming in here. A lot of people don't realize the significance of this. Unrestricted free agency, even back then, was something that was generally only able to be used to pick up players that were past their prime or that had injury concerns or that weren't really that good to begin with. Kevin Mawai was a guy who was one of the best centers in the league, even when the Jets got him. And obviously, he would go on to become the best center in the league and an absolutely elite player. But at the time, he was already one of the best centers in the league. He had just turned 27 years old. A guy like that is pretty much never available in free agency. Just look at what's going on now. Even Le'Veon Bell is 27 years old. He's available. But Chris, we both know the only reason is because there's all kinds of baggage and a weird contract situation. So just think about that, that a guy who is this level of an offensive lineman was available at 27 years old and the Jets pounced on it at the time. Yeah, it, it's crazy to think about. And, you know, stuff like that still uh, seeps in and infects fans' views because they still just, oh, we can just go get an offensive, buy an offensive line in free agency. And it ain't that simple. It's, it's very rare that that happens. And, you know, occasionally you'll get somebody who wasn't used in a proper way or they weren't used to the maximum of their, to get the most out of their ability. And then another coach sees it and knows how to bring them in and, do it and the thing with Kevin Mawai that really stands out what makes it a no-brainer Hall of Famer is he was really ahead of the curve evolutionary when you talk about centers and even offensive linemen you the way you know back then the 80s early 90s it was all offensive line was all about power strength and power you just wanted to get maul the guy in front of you and run him over and while Kevin Mawai was a 
a big man and, you know, six, six, four, that's centers typically aren't six, four nowadays. It's, it's for the reason of what Kevin Mawai was, his athleticism, the way he moved at his size, the ability to pull and to get out and block guys on the second level and do all those types of things. He was ahead of the curve on uh, the evolutionary scale there. And now you look at centers now today, a lot of times they're a little bit shorter. They're around, you know, a little, just barely over six feet. They have more athletic ability, can move better. And Kevin Mawai was absolutely at the forefront of that movement. Absolutely. A guy that big shouldn't be able to move the way that he did. 6'4", 290, and he can move like a guy half his size, and he had the power and strength to go with it. And that's a big part of the reason, Chris, why he ended up on the 2000 All-Decade team in the Jets' ring of honor, and he was a seven-time, seven, seven-time first-team All-Pro. whole bunch of those coming with the New York Jets, 1999 to 2002, 2004, and then he went on and did it again with Tennessee in 2007, 2008. And if you look at the Jets during the successful years, a lot of those playoff runs, go ahead and take a look at where Curtis Martin was running. A lot of times it was yep. Kevin Mawai clearing out those holes for him. And you go and talk to Curtis Martin. He'll tell you all about it. As good as Curtis Martin was, he was made much, much better by Kevin Mawai blocking in front of him. Yeah, absolutely. There's just, again, no disputing it. And you can – you. Go back and, you know, obviously I wasn't covering the Jets back then, so I was just watching from home like everybody else. And, uh, you know, I I didn't used to watch games the same way I watch them now. I break them down and everything. But sometimes there's a player that is just so dominant and so good and does things that other players at that position don't do that you can't help but notice it. And I, I was young kid watching it and I was, just amazed by watching what he could do. And you could see that the Jets were using him in ways that other people weren't. And that was such a huge benefit to Curtis Martin. And opposing uh, defenses had to learn how to adjust to this new, new, you know, watching centers pull, watching centers do this type of stuff, move around like that, be that effective. He was, again, he's at the forefront of it. And it's always the case. The running back's going to get the credit. The quarterback's going to get the credit. But you need that offensive line up front, help paving the way, clearing the way, and everything. And he was the anchor of that team. And, you know, of course, uh, we're going to hear, you've already heard some of it, going to hear a lot more about it, that uh, Kevin Mawai, the Jets got so lucky with having Kevin Mawai and then being able to put in Nick Mangold. So, you know, the Packers had Brett Favre to Aaron Rodgers. The Colts had Peyton Manning to Aaron Luck, and the Jets' version is is two centers. But even when Mawai went to Tennessee, I didn't think he was going to play as well as he did at that advanced age. But he went in there, and he, he was a great leader. You can't find anybody in any locker room that has anything even, you know, everything is super uber positive. And he went to Tennessee and he continued to play at a high level because he was just that good. While sports can bring us so much joy, it can also bring us a lot of unwanted stress. And that stress can make it difficult to concentrate, relax, and get decent sleep. Sunday Scaries was launched in 2017 by two best friends and business partners, Bo Schmidt and Mike Sill. 
They operated a full-service bar with 50 employees and were always exhausted. They tried all kinds of products, but they didn't work. Then they started experimenting with CBD. They loved the effects and regained control of their days and nights, but they wanted better CBD products. So what they did for themselves was specially formulate CBD gummies with vitamins D3 and B12 that were super consumable, easy to take on the go, and effective. Long story short, their specially formulated CBD products and vitamins helped relieve the overwhelming angst they felt on a daily basis. So in July 2017, they named the company Sunday Scaries and began sharing their products with friends and launched their online store at sundayscaries.com. With tens of thousands of customers, monthly subscribers, and a 100% money-back guarantee, Sunday Scaries has always been on a mission to transform a worrisome nation into a chill one. And right now, we have a bonus for you. Get 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. Again, 25% off all products at sundayscaries.com when you use the code OVERTIME. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Here's the crazy thing about it, Chris. When the Jets released him, and they did it because he'd gotten hurt at the end of the 2005 season, which we're going to get back to in a second when we talk about Ty Law, it was one of the worst seasons in Jets history, not just because they went 4-12, and but they were cursed. They had injury after injury to some of the best players in franchise history. It's the season that ended Wayne Corbett's career. It's the season that ultimately ended Curtis Martin's career. And it was the season that meant that the Jets were going to say goodbye to Kevin Why They released him. They ended up moving on and picking Nick Mangold obviously that worked out for them because Nick Mangold one day will also be in the Hall of Fame but Mawai was 35 at the time Chris when he went to Tennessee and he's coming off a major tricep injury so you had to figure okay this guy is going to be at best passable no he was more than at best (laughs) passable he went on to have two more first team all pro seasons Chris this guy was 37 and 38 years old as a center as a first team all pro Again, showing you what an absolute freak of nature and an incredible center that he really was. And I'll tell you this much. For as dominant as he was, even in his later years, I remember 2008 when the Jets were playing the Titans and he was going up against Chris Jenkins. And I was telling this story on Twitter as a way of remembering what a dominant force Jenkins was. I said... I couldn't believe it, but Chris Jenkins was throwing Mawai around, just swatting him like a fly, which nobody ever did to Kevin Mawai, and it showed you how dominant Chris Jenkins was before the injuries got the better of him. And Kevin Mawai saw the tweet and responded to it, and I looked and I said, oh no, Kevin Mawai (laughs) saw me say this, he's going to get all mad. And he just said, yeah, I specifically remember that play, talked about what the play was, without me even mentioning the specific play, he remembered it, and he just said, oh, well, sometimes you get the bear and sometimes the bear gets you. So he had a good sense of humor about it, too, recognizing, okay, Jenkins was a beast and he got the better of me that day and so what. But it just goes to show you that Kevin Mawai is not only a great player, but like you said, a great sport and a great leader that he could make a laughing matter out of it. But again, think about the fact that this is a guy that at the age of 38 years old was a first team all pro center, just an incredible career. Again, just to go down the list, eight time pro bowler, seven time first team all pro five of those were with the jets. 
He was a second-team All-Pro his first year with the Jets, too, in 1998. So that was the year that he was a Pro Bowler where he wasn't a first-team All-Pro. All-Decade team, New York Jets Ring of Honor, now in the Hall of Fame. And also, if you want to go back to college accolades, first-team All-SEC in 1991 and second-team All-SEC in 1993. So just an incredible career, one of the greatest players to ever play for the Jets. I would argue one of the best All things considered, if you think about age, contract, all of that, one of the best unrestricted free agent signings in the history of the NFL. Bill Parcells stole this guy from Seattle. Criminally underrated move by Parcells. We all talk about the Curtis Martin move, and with good reason. It was a phenomenal transaction. But Kevin Mawai getting into the Hall of Fame, certainly a credit to both Bill Parcells and the Jets organization that they were able to pluck this guy away from Seattle all those years ago. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Parcells came in here. He, you know, he wasn't here for too long, but he came in and he made a couple moves like that that just really set them up nicely. And to piggyback off that, your story on Twitter, the one of the things that probably made that so easy for Mawai to remember was there was a lot of times he got ragdolled. It's kind of, so it's kind of like, it's like remember when um, Stevie, Stevie Johnson had that, that game against Revis? where he had like 80-something yards and he, he had that one touchdown and people were going nuts about how Revis got torched. And it was like, man, that's that you're only saying that because of what the standard we hold to Revis, like Revis too. So like you have to look for that thing. Kevin Warren got ragdolled, got beat. He was got beat by the bear, as he said, so few times that the those couple times it did happen stick in his memory clear as day and he can just – remember it right off because he was so used to being the bear and dominating and that at that time he, he and you know chris jenkins was no slouch especially before those injuries so that's not a that's not an insult to say he got racked all by him but he was just that good and the combination again um the running back's going to get the credit uh you know that's especially back then that's that's how we looked at it it was all about the running back but the the combination of Mawai and Curtis Martin, when you have somebody as steady and as good and dominant as Mawai is, the anchor at that line, and talk about this all the time too, center position is kind of undervalued in, in, in just in general among fans because of how much intelligence they have to have. They Having to know what everybody else's job, responsibility is on the team, having to know everybody on the defense, what they're going to do, where they're going to have to go. And being able to make sure you get all the calls along the line straight, you make sure you relay all the information to your quarterback, and it, to have somebody that dominant at just anchoring that offensive line, it, it's going to nothing but help the entire rest of the offense. Oh, yeah, for sure. And you're 100% right. I even said to Mawai when he responded, I wrote back, the reason that it stuck out to me is because I never saw anybody do that to him the way that Jenkins did that day. So that just goes to show you his level of dominance all of those years. And the rest of these guys that are in the Hall of Fame class, you want to talk about dominant. Let's talk a little bit about Ty Law, who was drafted as the 23rd overall pick in the draft out of the University of Michigan in 1995, goes to the Patriots, and here are his credentials. Three-time Super Bowl champion, five-time Pro Bowler, two-time first-team All-Pro, two-time NFL interception leader. One of those was with the Jets, believe it or not. All-decade team in 2000, New England Patriots Hall of Fame, which is the equivalent of the Ring of Honor for the Jets, although I would imagine there's probably a little more prestigious in New England based on the players that have come through there. 
and now, of course, a Hall of Famer. And if you go through his career, just constant, constant big plays in addition to the fact that he was the lockdown corner of his era. He, in a lot of ways, was Revis before Revis. I remember his last year with the Patriots, his last year before he got hurt because his last season there was 2004. He got hurt, he missed a big portion of the year, and then they decided to move on because he was expensive. But he was already 31 years old and had dominated for a decade in 2003 was that game when he had all those interceptions against Peyton Manning in the playoff game. And if you remember, he had that reputation of kind of owning Peyton Manning, a reputation that would later go to Antonio Cromartie, who would pick him off a whole bunch of times when he was on San Diego. But then Ty Law, after all those years in New England, becomes a cap casualty and comes to the New York Jets. And at this point, he's 31 years old. You're thinking... Okay, how much does he have left in the tank? Well, he had a lot left in the tank, Chris. In fact, as I mentioned before, 2005 was an absolute nightmare season. They lost all those players. Herm Edwards ended up leaving town afterwards. It was a mess. They had to change the coach, the general manager. We didn't know what was going to happen with Chad Pennington coming out of that season, too. But Ty Law had a great year. He had 10 interceptions, and he ended up going to the Pro Bowl again. He ended up being a first-team All-Pro, and now... We're talking about a guy who at 31 years old still seems to be at the top of his game. After that, he followed Herm Edwards to Kansas City. His play tailed off a little bit after two years. He actually came back to the Jets very, very briefly in 2008 when they needed some help because of injuries. He came in in November, and then the Jets released him again. Ended up retiring shortly after that. He went to the Broncos for a very short stint, but his career in New England, a decade of excellence is what got him into the Hall of Fame in addition to that extra year with the Jets. I feel like people don't really understand how good Ty Law was with all the talk about Darrell Revis. Revis only had about four excellent seasons. He had two or three pretty good ones, but four excellent seasons. Ty Law was outstanding for a full decade on a team, no less, that went to the Super Bowl all those times. So what a career for Ty Law. Yeah, absolutely. And right about he was Revis before Revis and uh, going right down to where they both came from. Aliquippa of Pennsylvania, yeah. you know, that that's where Revis is from. And, and Revis grew up looking up to Ty Law, um, kind of modeling his game after Ty Law. And, you know, I, I'm a little biased here because I've, I always tend to gravitate towards cornerbacks and safeties. So this is a good class for me. This is a class that gets me excited for those three guys up there. But I, I cornerbacks and safeties, those are always the positions I like to watch the most, those are some of the positions that I think are the hardest because of what you have to do. You're running backwards and reacting to the guy who's running forwards ahead of you. It's just so difficult. And, I mean, he was an absolute stud, an absolute technician, and he easily, you know, talk about Revis, and obviously he's going to get in. He his, his prime was head and shoulders above everybody else. But you get Ty Law, Champ Bailey, these types who, you know, had were able to have a great career for a much uh, bigger period of time, over a much more extended period of time. And Ty Law was that dude. He was that good. Obviously, everyone remembers the AFC Championship game against the Colts where he had those three interceptions. Um, that, you know, that's obviously the highlight. He took over that game. But he was and he played like that all the time quarterbacks you know you don't always get those interceptions but he was that good and people 
really do have a lack of understanding about just how good he was and how much fun he was to watch. Hey guys, Greg Peterson here with the Baseball Betting Podcast. As we know, the MLB season is back in our lives. It's going to be a 60-game sprint unlike anything that we've ever seen before. And I'm going to be giving you picks every single day, seven days a week with Major League Baseball. We're also going to be keeping up with the KBO as well. If you like baseball and you like being able to make some money, subscribe to the Baseball Betting Podcast with Greg Peterson on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. Weird coincidence with him coming from Aliquippa and Darrell Rivas coming from there as well. It seems like there might be something in the water. There might also be something to the fact that the 23rd pick seems to be lucky because we said Ty Law was the 23rd pick in the 1995 NFL Draft. Well, guess what, Chris? The 23rd pick in the 2002 NFL Draft also goes into the Hall of Fame, and that is Ed Reed. Ed Reed also spent... A very brief period of time with the Jets, which we'll get into in a second. But here's a guy that went to the University of Miami. He was a track star, a fantastic football player, ended up being arguably the best player on the 2001 National Championship team for the Miami Hurricanes. Then he ends up going to the Baltimore Ravens as a pro and becomes an outstanding player. If you remember, it was him and Roy Williams who ended up getting drafted by the Dallas Cowboys, and everybody expected those two to dominate the league. Well, Roy Williams had a good year or two and then kind of fell off a cliff. That was not the case with Ed Reed, as was the case with Ty Law. Ed Reed had a decade of dominance. Listen to this. In addition to winning the Super Bowl, as we know, he was the 2004 Defensive Player of the Year, three-time second-team All-Pro, five-time first-team All-Pro, nine-time Pro Bowler, all-decade team for 2000, Baltimore Ravens Ring of Honor. He was a BCS National Champion, as I mentioned before, two-time All-American, and just an absolute force all over the place. I could write a book just based on the incredible big plays that Ed Reed made in the biggest moments, not just in the pros, but also at the University of Miami. There was a game, I believe it was against Boston College, where he saved their undefeated season and their run at the national championship by making an incredible interception that deflected off somebody's shoe. So this is a guy who just had an absolutely dominant career for a decade, ended up moving on from the Ravens and going to the Houston Texans in 2013. But by that point, Chris, it was very obvious that he didn't have anything left in the tank, came to the Jets after the Ravens released him about midseason, didn't do much for the Jets, but it was still fun to be able to say that Ed Reed had a stopover here in his Hall of Fame career, obviously came in because he was friends with Rex and had worked with him in Baltimore. Unfortunately, they couldn't get lightning in a bottle there, but still very, very deserving guy to go in on the first ballot. Ed Reed, one of the greatest safeties in the history of the sport, if not the greatest safety. Yeah, absolutely. And his time with the Jets, that was a funny period of time because, you know, you got they had they brought in Ladanian Tomlinson. They brought in Michael Vick. They brought in Ed Reed, Jay Taylor, all these guys who, like, I grew up watching and being like, oh, my God, these guys are incredible. And then all of a sudden, they, they were obviously nothing near what they used to be when they came in for the Jets. But it was one of those weird moments for me because I'm sitting there, like, remembering how I used to look at these guys. And now I'm sitting there talking to them. And I remember the first time I watched Ed Reed on a football field, uh, you know, watching him at Miami and just being like, who is that guy? Because he was just on another level and absolutely incredible. And uh, his ability 
to just freelance. Uh, I've talked to Bart Scott about him numerous times because Ed Reed was one of, if not my favorite player ever. Again, I, I have the bias towards corners and safeties. Um, Bart said they used to call him Renegade Ed because he would just <laughs> he would just do whatever he wanted to do. And it didn't matter what the play call was. He would sit there, he would look and assess, and he would kind of diagnose and um, you know f- take his chances. And you know, Bart made sure to uh, say that you know, uh, roll a uh, Samari roll uh, was the other guy that they had at the time. And he was like, you know, make sure that he could cover up for Ed, for Ed if he decided to go freelance and do that renegade Ed, Ed style. And then there's stories of where uh, Ed Reed would purposely play a call wrong early in the season. So he would have put on tape him out of position on in certain formations and alignments. So when Peyton Manning would go and look at the tape, he'd see Ed Reed do this and do that, which wasn't supposed to do. But then going into the game, he would think that Ed, this is what Ed Reed was going to do. And then Ed Reed's like, no, that was all a setup. That was a trap because I was coming for you. I knew you would study this stuff meticulously. I knew you would expect that. And he would just flip it and play it completely differently. And so, like, I'm not sitting there in, like, a random uh, – third a week three game of the season and you're purposely playing a play wrong so Peyton Manning will see that on tape and you might be able to confuse him that's that's you know 64 dimension chess type stuff we're talking about here and that's the type of player he was and man it was fun to watch the way he flew around such a hard hitter uh being able to make the be that center fielder to make those picks and interceptions and run back he was as fun as it gets to watch as an NFL player. He and Troy Polamalu were very much yep. similar in that way where, like you said, they were almost like free agents on the field. They could just go and roam wherever they were because their instincts were on another level. It was almost a supernatural ability to understand where the ball was going to go. So I'm sure Troy Polamalu will get in shortly, but for now we see Ed Reed in there. And like I said, you could make the case that he's the greatest safety of all time, and if not, he's certainly in the discussion. And you want to talk about being in the discussion for one of the greatest defensive backs of all time. Here's another one, Champ Bailey. Now, I've said I don't necessarily think he's quite as good as Ty Law was, but boy, what a career for this guy, too. He was picked a little bit earlier than Ed Reed and Ty Law, who were picked 23rd, but he was picked 17th in the first round, coming out of the University of Georgia, and what an outstanding career he had, not only in college, but in the pros. Won the Bronco Nagurski Trophy in 1998, was a consensus All-American, so those are his credentials from the college ranks. But now we get to the pros, we're listening to this. Three-time first-team All-Pro, three-time second-team All-Pro, interceptions leader in 2006, of course the 2000 All-Decade team, member of the Denver Broncos 50th anniversary team, now in the Hall of Fame. He was also somebody who, in addition to being just a blanket cover guy, who could run with the best of them and take out your number one receiver just as well as almost anybody else in NFL history could. Here's somebody who was part of a very bizarre trade because you don't typically see somebody that good traded. And if you do, it's usually for draft picks, not for another player. He was flipped 
for Clinton Portis. So he went to the Denver Broncos from the Redskins who originally drafted him. Portis went to the Redskins. Portis had some really nice years for the Redskins, so I'm not going to say that it was a terrible trade. But the Denver Broncos clearly got the better of this because for as good as Champ Bailey was with the Redskins, making the Pro Bowl in 1999 and 2000, he went to the Denver Broncos and then ended up becoming an All-Pro multiple times. He was there from 2004 to 2013, so think about this, Chris. He was at a high level for the Redskins and the Broncos for a combined 15 seasons as a cornerback, which just seems insane because cornerback relies so much on speed and athleticism. He had that stopover in New Orleans at the very end where he signed a contract but didn't end up actually making the team. I would argue that that's a good thing because it would have tainted his legacy. But what a fantastic career Champ Bailey had. Look at this class. You had some of the best defensive backs ever between Ed Reed, Tidelaw, and now Champ Bailey. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about that trade. It's wild to think about now because imagine today trying to trade a, uh, one of the best running backs for one of the best cornerbacks. That is, that's not happening. Straight up trade. That's, that's not happening. Nobody's doing that. Um, but, and uh, I think you're right about the Broncos winning that trade in the long run. But in, in the short term, that, that worked out very well for both of them. It's just Champ Bailey was just so great for so long that they eventually won that. But he was, he was just so good. And, uh, you know, again, cornerback is such a hard position to play. And to be that dominant for that long, again, to, with the Reeves comparison, he, he's, uh, Bailey is kind of, you know, more in the Charles Woodson range where I would say their peak wasn't nearly at Revis's level, but their peak lasted for a lot longer. And obviously we know Charles Woodson switched to safety later, but like what Champ Bailey was able to do, the way he was able to lock people down, um, you know, I, I love listening to uh, Dominique Foxworth a lot on ESPN. Um, and he played with him in Ver- and he talked about his rookie season, about how he came in and he was the number two corner on the other side with champ over there. And he was just going, he remembers going into that season, just being like, Oh man, I'm going to have my work cut out for me because they're going to be coming after me because they got champ locking that number one guy up on the other side of the field. And they're going to be attacking me or this rookie out of Maryland. And he was right because champ Bailey was that good. Absolutely. Just a dominant force there. Like I said, I don't know that he's quite as good as Revis or Ty Law, but an outstanding corner, one of the 10, maybe even five best cornerbacks to ever play in the NFL. And certainly somebody that players at the cornerback position look up to, not only as a player, but as a human being going forward unquestionably one of the measuring sticks at the cornerback position. And if you want to talk about measuring stick, when it comes to the tight end position, the measuring stick was Tony Gonzalez, who also gets into the Hall of Fame as part of the class of 2019. Just to give you an idea of what an amazing athlete this guy was, not only was he a fantastic tight end at Cal Berkeley, he was also an excellent basketball player. In fact, he helped Cal get to the Sweet 16 when he was there. Then he ends up going to the NFL, pick 13th overall in the NFL draft. And Chris, you know, these days you hear all the time about how teams are looking for the next Sean McVay. We need the next Sean McVay. We've got to get ourselves the next Sean McVay. Well, let me tell you a little something about Tony Gonzalez. Every single team in the NFL after Tony Gonzalez hit the scene 
wanted the next Tony Gonzalez because Tony Gonzalez completely changed the game and completely changed that position. He brought superb athleticism to that spot. There was nothing he couldn't do. This guy could block. He could catch. He could run. He was unstoppable. For everybody that watches Gronk now, Tony Gonzalez was the original Gronk without all the hijinks and craziness. So dominant that he just could not be stopped. A 10-time All-Pro, six times a first-team All-Pro, four times a second-team All-Pro, NFL 2000 All-Decade Team, Consensus All-American in college, 14-time Pro Bowler, 14 times. So if you look at what he did, he opened the door to all of these multi-sport athletes, especially basketball players, because there are guys that never would have gotten a look if not for Tony Gonzalez. People were looking at basketball players with not that much football experience and saying well if Tony Gonzalez could be this good as a basketball player maybe we're missing out if we don't go and get the next guy Antonio Gates being an example Chris he was a guy who was known much more for his basketball skills in college than anything else but he ended up becoming one of the greatest tight ends of all time who knows if the Chargers would have taken a chance on him if not for Tony Gonzalez and you could go down the line Ricky Dudley was another one although he ended up not being anywhere near as good in the pros as he was in college and even though he's a freak athlete and all that but just a pioneer in every way at that position changed the way the teams looked at the tight end and the way that they scouted the tight end i don't even think it's arguable that he now becomes the greatest tight end to be included in the hall of fame well deserved glad he got in and another elite player to add to this juggernaut hall of fame class yeah and again with him as great as he was at his peak, it's the longevity that he had mm-hmm. that is just truly mind-blowing. I mean, watching him in Kansas City, everyone knew how good he was. And then he goes to Atlanta, and you're like, all right, he's probably still has a little something in the tank. And they'd be like, whoa, no, okay, he's still got a bunch left in the tank. And when he actually retired, it was like, you sure you want to retire? You look like you can still go another couple years. He was that good. And Kind of like I was talking about with Mawai about being ahead of the curve evolutionary uh, on the evolutionary scale. He was the same way. Like the athleticism back then, tight ends were still mostly blockers. They they could do some receiving here and there, but they weren't your main receiving threat. They weren't the, what defenses had to concern themselves most about. And with Kansas City, that's what he was. He was that athletic and that much explosive of a playmaker that he was the focal point. He was so good, and it really changed the way defenses had to go about their approach and everything else. And I I agree. He's right now he's the best tight end to ever go in the Hall of Fame. I think by the time Gronkowski goes in there, that'll be uh, a little bit different just because he's just so much bit so huge in the way he moved. And But uh, Tony Gonzalez was as good as it gets, and he was absolutely at the forefront of changing that position. Hey guys, this is Greg Peterson, host of the podcast Hoopin' with Hoops. Despite the fact that college basketball is in the offseason, it's never too early to get a jump start on taking a look at these teams because there is now 357 of them for the upcoming 2020-2021 college basketball season. I'm going to give you guys a deep dive on every last one of them, keep up with all the transfers in college basketball, and so much more. You are able to subscribe to Hoopin' with Hoops on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is the Overtime Podcast Network. 
Like you said with Mawai, a guy that size shouldn't be able to move like that. You had Tony Gonzalez at six foot five, two hundred fifty pounds, being able to run like a Insane. wide receiver. It was absolutely incredible. And as far as longevity goes, like we said before with Kevin Mawai, at thirty six years old, here's Kevin Mawai going to Tennessee and then having two more all pro seasons, even at the age of thirty eight. Well, here's what happened with Gonzalez at thirty three. He gets dealt from Kansas City after eleven years. As the best tight end in the game 11 years yeah. He gets dealt to Atlanta You figure okay Caps things off Maybe he has a chance At a championship It didn't happen But he's 33 So you figure he's near the end Well guess what At 36 years old In 2012 This guy is a first team all pro So just again Much like Mawai And the rest of the guys On this list An incredible addition To the Pro Football Hall of Fame And let me tell you something We can talk all we want to About players but it's the guys that recognize the talent, the guys who understand who to sign, who to draft. They are the architects of these great teams that these players eventually play for. And if you want to talk about architects, the first name that comes to mind, and I cannot believe it took this long for him to get into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, is Gil Brandt. Yeah, no, I I, I was, saw that and I was like, he's not already? Right. <laughs> that was my exact reaction. I was like, I thought... And I, I could have sworn I've seen people and talk about Hall of Famer Gil, Gil Brandt uh, for like the past five, ten years. I thought that was, that, that was just already in. Uh, yeah, no, he's he absolutely had a lot to do with those Cowboys teams, scouting, putting those teams together, um, going to media later. But like he absolutely deserves it. And his reputation around the league, I know there's – you know, there's not a lot because the players, young uh, young players these days, don't ha have as much. But like, I I know in the past I've talked to players and they've been like, oh, I'm surprised that they were so well versed in who Gil Brandt was and what he did, and his reputation around the league is pristine and he's so extremely respected and high, highly thought of, and it's because of what he did. He and he absolutely contributed to the game enough to warrant a hall of fame place in the hall of fame and i i'm right there with you i i thought he was already in i thought so too i was stunned when i saw his name come across but in case you're unfamiliar with gil brandt let me go through his credentials with you from 1960 to 1988 he was the guy who was tom landry's right hand and doing a lot of the personnel and scouting and all of these things they had a winning record for 20 straight seasons 20 yeah. straight seasons, 13 division titles, six conference championships, and two Super Bowls. They were the Patriots before the Patriots. Now, you could argue the Patriots are more impressive because they had more Super Bowls and also it was the salary cap era. Sorry. But either way, you're talking about something that is so unbelievably impressive. This is also a guy who pretty much invented the modern scouting combine. And let me talk a little bit about some of the players that this guy brought in. Now, we talked about Tony Gonzalez changing things the way people looked at two sport athletes. Oh, I got to find a basketball player because look at what Tony Gonzalez did. Here's a list of some guys that Gil Brandt was able to bring in from other sports that made an impact for the Dallas Cowboys during his tenure. Bob Hayes, Cornell Green, Peter Grant, Tony Fritch, Percy Howard, Ken Johnson, Ron Howard, Wayne Manning, Manny Hendricks, Mac Percival. Here are some players that he brought in on low round gambles because it looked like they weren't going to play right away or if at all in the NFL. 
We remember Roger Staubach. He had to enlist in the Navy, so he went off for his commitment. The Cowboys were able to snag him. He turns into a Hall of Famer. Herschel Walker signs with the USFL. Same deal there. They're able to get him, and he becomes a hell of a player. They ended up trading him for what would be the pieces that would turn into the next Cowboys dynasty. You want to talk about finding undrafted free agent players that were great? He did that too. Drew Pearson, Cliff Harris, Everson Walls. He also had a reputation for making trades where he was able to get high-impact draft picks. Give you an example, Randy White. We all know how great he was. Ed Tuttle Jones, Tony Dorsett. On and on down the line, just incredible accomplishments. I still can't even believe this guy wasn't in the Hall of Fame already. Maybe the greatest executive in the history of the sport. And if not, he's certainly right at the top of the list. Yeah, and, and sticking with the theme of this class, it's another guy that's ahead, that was ahead of the curve. And you, you know, you had him come in and had the success he had, and it forced everybody out to look at things differently. Just like the tight end position changed, the center position changed, and it's a theme in this draft. He came in, did such a good job, and it forced everybody else to try to look at things differently. Obviously, just like not all the basketball, old basketball players converted to tight ends were. Not that all the execs were able to follow him and have the same success, but he was at the forefront of it. He was ahead of the curve, and the Cowboys reaped the benefits of that for a long time, and it's absolutely well-deserving, if not past due, for Gil Brandt. Let's talk real briefly about the other two names on this list. I hate to gloss over it, but Johnny Robinson, here's a guy that was a big-time player at LSU. He was picked in the first round of the AFL draft in 1960 and also the first round of the NFL draft the same year. Ended up going to the Texans in the AFL because the Texans actually did exist before the current incarnation that we know about. Was used as a running back before eventually being moved to defense in his third year where he had four interceptions. Ended up playing in 164 games over 12 seasons. Led the AFL in interceptions in 1966. Led the NFL in interceptions in 1970 was named an all afl player five straight years and an all pro in 1969 all nfl in 1970 so certainly great credentials there for a well-respected veteran and the last one pat bolin we talked about executives we talked about players let's talk about an owner here i think a lot of people don't understand what a good owner he was you hear a lot about the roonies the maras Bob Kraft. Well, let's talk about his resume, Chris. The Broncos posted 350 victories, seven Super Bowl appearances, and a regular season winning percentage of 603 when Pat Bolin was the owner of the team. They made the playoffs 18 times, won the division 13 times, had seven AFC Conference Championships, and three Super Bowl titles. He also served as co-chair of the NFL Management Council Executive Committee and as a chair of NFL Broadcast Committee. He was responsible for negotiating $18 billion in television contract revenue as well. And, of course, he's in the Broncos' ring of honor. So I think if you look at his resume, not only how well the Broncos did when he was the owner, showing that he understood how to make the right decisions that we often lambaste guys like Woody Johnson for not knowing how to make, hiring the right people, putting the right people in the right places, he's also somebody who did a great job as a manager and involved heavily within the league, helping to negotiate that huge money television contract, which helped not only the owners, but also the players, obviously, because with more television money coming in, the players' salaries went up. So all around, a hell of a resume for Pat Bolin as an owner during his time with the Denver Broncos. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, owners, fans uh, aren't going to sit there and break down, uh, you know, the positives and negatives of owners so much. That's, you know, it's not something I particularly look into. But you look at him and he, you just growing up, the Broncos were always good. The Broncos were always there. You know, they struggled to, to win the losing those Super Bowls with Elway at first until the end of his career. But Pat Bowen, uh, I saw he had 300 wins in the first 30 years of his, as the owner. So that's 10 years. For 30 years, they averaged 10 wins a season. For 30-year stretch. Like, think about that. <laughs> Jets fans, imagine what that would be like. Instead of just having two two good years back-to-back and then have to reset and go back down, it, for 30 years, they averaged 10 wins a season. And that's just incredible. And then, of course, as you just talked about, bringing in the money like that and everything, it, 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 he obviously did a very good job with that franchise. And, you know, you're an owner for that long in the NFL, you're, you're going to get in the Hall of Fame. But he, he's deserving of it, absolutely. Like we were saying, Chris, it's very difficult to build a team that's going to win that many games in that long a period of time, the same way that we talked about how impressive it was that the Cowboys had 20 straight winning seasons, so too is that winning percentage over such a long period of time. And for anybody that wants to say he was just an owner, I think a big part of it is, and we've said this with Woody Johnson, it all starts with ownership and knowing exactly how to make the right decisions and put the right people in the right places and then not get involved too much. And I yeah. think that's what Pat Bolin did, and it resulted in great success on the field. The guys that were the players and the guys that were the coaches were the ones that were making the day-to-day decisions, but Bolin was the one who recognized who were the right people to be making those decisions, and that's a very important thing. Plus, he made a lot of people a lot of money, so you throw that all together, and certainly a worthy guy to be in the Hall of Fame. What a tremendous class this is overall, Chris. And with an all-time great Jet like Kevin Mawai getting inducted, i got to strongly consider making the trip to Canton in August. Yeah, I have a feeling a lot of fans are going to feel that way. It's completely understandable. And, you know, fans also typically, especially after the player has retired, fans typically like to gravitate more towards the the more the offensive linemen, the blue-collar guys. That's one of the, the benefits of it. They might not get the attention that they that's in recognition they, they deserve right off the bat because offensive line gets lost in the shuffle. But it comes back around at the end, and I have a feeling that Canton is going to be uh, extremely crowded with uh, Jets fans there. This is one of the strongest classes that I can remember in quite some time, possibly since the year that Jerry Rice and Emmett Smith both went in together. I am really looking forward to watching the induction speeches. And here's something else to consider, Chris. When we see these guys on stage accepting their honors in Canton, it basically means that football is back because then you've got the Hall of Fame game and the preseason, and we're right back in the thick of things. So that's always what I look forward to. I say Hall of Fame weekend when these guys get in, that's when football really starts back up again. Yeah, absolutely. That's the best part of the weekend for me. So see that, and you know it's right around the corner. 100%. Chris, thanks so much for coming on and breaking down this news with me about who is going to be in the 2019 Hall of Fame class. So glad that three guys who played for the Jets, but one guy who really made his name in the NFL as a Jet are going to be going in. We will talk again later in the week, but in the meantime, why don't you tell people where they can find you and your great work? 
Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at CNimbly and of course JetsInsider.com. And uh, yeah, working on a bunch of stuff there, but uh, we'll have uh, you know plenty of plenty of tweets going off and articles coming in the future. So. Go ahead and follow Chris on Twitter. Go to JetsInsider.com. And for the latest and greatest in New York Jets podcast, you know where to go. It's Turn on the Jets Digital and TurnOnTheJets.com.